So uh, turn with me uh, in God's Word to Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. That's where we'll spend our time this morning. Uh, read the text with me. It says, uh, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Um, let's go to the Lord one more time, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to this most uh, marvelous and majestic and, and fearful time uh, of our service together, Lord, as we open your very word in which you speak to us, uh, Lord, I, I do pray that we would come uh, with fear and, and trembling, knowing that this is a, a mighty, uh, wonderful thing, a wonderful privilege that we do not deserve, that we can have uh, your very word in our hands, that you speak uh, to us. And I do pray uh, this morning that, that all of us uh, would leave here changed, that you would give us open eyes and ears, uh, that your spirit would convict of sin, Lord, that if anyone here does not truly know you, uh, Lord, that you would bring a true saving knowledge of the gospel that you would bring faith and repentance. Uh, Lord, you, uh, your will is perfect. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to trust the things that you say uh, in your word uh, and go forth, change people. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so I've, uh, I've entitled this sermon uh, Three Ways to Bring Joy to Your Pastor. Uh, and that's because uh, nothing overly particular you just you see Paul says this is his prayer for the church uh, what would bring any pastor any faithful pastor more joy than to see his congregation uh, flourishing in these areas this is how uh, Paul prays for the church in Philippi and this is how every faithful pastor uh, prays for their own church uh, however this is not only an example of how a pastor prays for his church but how every believer should pray for the church, uh, for their family, uh, even for themselves. Um, this is a, a model prayer for what we should desire to see the church and, and our own uh, hearts growing in uh, these things that, that Paul prays for the church in Philippi. Uh, some, some historical data here. This is, this is a prison epistle. Uh, so Paul wrote this from prison. Uh, imagine, if you will, the temptation. He's He's cold. He's probably sick. He's sitting in an uncomfortable cell. He has no friends around him. You know, he, he sees his, his death as, as imminent. Imagine in that situation the temptation you would have uh, to just uh, emotionally curl into the fetal position and just wait until the end to shut off, to shut down, to stop caring. Uh, this, is, this is the opposite of what we see Paul do. Paul spends all of his time pouring himself out for the church. He serves the church even from prison. He prays for them. He writes letters to them. He thinks of them constantly. He sends the few friends that he has to their aid. You know, as Paul prays, he would be poured out as a drink offering for them. You know, we, we see Paul's incredible pastoral love um, especially in the prison epistles. Um, also, 
notice that he, he prays this for them. Uh, I, I think this is significant. He does not command them to do these things. He prays for them that this would be a spiritual reality in, his, in their lives. Uh, so this not only shows his pastoral care, uh, but it also, I think, puts us in a proper perspective that these are things that we cannot just manufacture. Uh, we do not just, just work out uh, more love and approving what is excellent and right thinking. We, we cannot drum this up out of some form of self-righteousness. Uh, not in our own strength, but in humble dependence upon the Lord. Um, and, and this is still just, just introductory to get our minds in the right place. But this, this relationship can be confusing between uh, where, is it, where is it my work and where is it the Lord's work? Is there a proper balance? Am I not trying hard enough? Am I trying too hard? Am I relying too much? Uh, I, I think that we have a, a wonderful picture of this a little bit later in the book. Uh, Paul says... In Philippians 2, uh, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation uh, with fear and trembling. For, so this is the reason that he gives for why you should work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Guys, divine math does not work the same as human math. Um, if there was ever a reason in my mind for apathy, it would be knowing, okay, so God is the one doing all the work. God is accomplishing his good pleasure in my life. He's working so I can let him work and get out of the way. No, Paul says, because God is working in you for his good pleasure, because God is causing you to do good things, therefore, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Strive, supply every effort because... God is the one at work in you. And so as we come to this passage here in Philippians 1, Paul prays for them that these would be a spiritual reality in their life and that in no way means for them or for us that this is something that we do not supply effort, but that effort is completely enveloped uh, underneath our humble dependence upon the Lord. All right, so if you're taking notes, the, the first way that you can bring joy to your pastor, as the Philippians could have brought joy to Paul, is to love biblically. We see here in verse 9, says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So we see that, that love is foundational to the things which Paul prays for the church. Uh, these three things that he has, they are not three things in no particular order where he just says, these are three things that I hope are a reality in your life. Um, pick one and go for it. Uh, we see with certainty that these build upon each other uh, because of Paul's grammar. Uh, look at the, the conjunctions, the, the prepositions that he has in between these. So he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more so that... You may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless. So these, these three things go in chronological order. They're built upon one another. And foundationally, Paul says, first and foremost, he prays that they would abound more and more in love. Uh, I, I think this word still here is also significant. 
Because Paul is not saying that he thinks they're starting at zero. He's not reprimanding them because they aren't loving. He's saying, in addition to how much you love one another already, still more and more on top of that, may your love abound. Um, I, I think, as an aside, we can draw from this. It's, it's a good reminder we should never become too comfortable uh, with where we're at. Uh, no matter where you are in your journey of sanctification with the Lord, there's never a point where you can say, I, I've arrived, I've made it, I'm, I'm going to coast from here on out. I, I'm now fully sanctified, and there's no room for growth. No, Paul says, in this wonderful letter where they are, they are not reprimanded, and, and beloved, if you fast forward to Revelation, uh, if I remember correctly, they are the only church that is not reprimanded in the book of Revelation. This is a healthy church. This is not a failing church like so many of the churches that Paul wrote letters to in the New Testament. And yet he still says, more and more, in addition to where you are, may your love abound. Paul wants their love to grow without limit. This phrase, still more and more, uh, gives a picture of almost excessive quantity. Uh, even the word still uh, denotes a growth, and then it's not still more, but still more and more. There, there should be no limit uh, to the amount of love that they have for one another. Limitless as to quantity. Uh, however, Paul's prayer is not that they simply would have more love as a blanket statement. He wants them to have more biblical love, and that, that is a significant difference, especially in today's world where the word love is thrown around to the point of becoming meaningless. Paul goes on to describe the type of love that he wants the Philippians to grow in as being characterized by knowledge and discernment. Uh, many define love as being accepting of someone exactly as they are and never disagreeing with any of their life choices. That, that is the, the going <coughs> definition today, hot off the press, is that if you love someone, that means that you have to agree with everything they do and never judge them. Uh, we're, we're bombarded daily with the message that uh, stating objective truth is the opposite of love. You know, that if, if tomorrow my son decided to tell me that he was gonna grow up to be a tomato, the only way I could love him is to affirm him and agree with him and not tell him that that was impossible or wrong. Uh, I, I read a list of 10 facts about love according to uh, neuroscience. And I can uh, verify that all 10 were absolute garbage. Um, but there was one in particular that really stood out to me at the end. <clears throat> it said that uh, according to science, love is blind. Or love causes us not to see things negatively, not to be able to think critically or objectively. Uh, and that is the opposite of what Paul is saying here. He's saying that our love is to be thought through critically and objectively. Uh, those are the very things that he wants to characterize and define the love that we are to have as believers, that the church in Philippi is to grow in. So because, because of this, we have to be very specific in the way that it defined, the, the way that we define what it means to be uh, more loving. So, uh, the, the safest place, obviously, to do that is to look at how does Scripture define love? Or what does the Bible say true love looks like? 
probably the, the first place that everyone goes. If I say, what does the Bible say about love? What? 1 Corinthians 13. You know, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, love is not rude. And this is a, a wonderful, excellent, convicting example of what love is. And it definitely is in view here, but I think Paul is actually emphasizing uh, a different facet of love uh, here in Philippians. In Colossians 1.28, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, <clears throat> excuse me, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Uh, I think what Paul is focusing on here is that in our love for one another, in our love for other believers, our greatest desire is to see one another presented mature in Christ. Now, this is not only the desire that every pastor has for every person in his church, but this is the desire that every one of us as believers should have for every other believer. I want nothing more for any of you, for my children, for my wife, for anyone in my home church, than at the end of the day, they might look more like Christ. At the end of their life, they might look as much like Christ as it is possible for a human, the side of heaven, to look. And that love then defines everything that we do. Every word that we say to them, where we push in strong, where we lovingly hold back, it's not defined by, I want them to feel good about themselves. It's not defined by, I want them to be happy. It's defined by, nothing brings me more joy than to see them look more like Christ, and I will do everything in my power to help them in that pursuit. This, uh, obviously, is not the world's version of love that turns a blind eye to sin, that says, live and let live. That says, I will let you make terrible choices, but because you are my friend, because you are my loved one, I'm not going to judge you. If you're my friend and you're making terrible choices, I will be the first person at your front door telling you that I think what you're doing is horrible. And as Christians, that is the kind of love that we should have for one another all of the time. Uh, we, we get a further clue as to what kind of love Paul is talking about in this qualifying phrase, in real knowledge, in all discernment. Um, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit uh, ac academic and nerdy here. Uh, bear with me, uh, but the, the payoff is absolutely worth it. Uh, so the word that Paul uses here for knowledge is, is epigenosco. Um, or excuse me, epigenosis. It matters to me. Um, you might be familiar with the word uh, Gnostic or Gnosis, um, which is the normal word for knowledge, but this word uh, specifically speaks of theological knowledge, transcendent knowledge, moral knowledge. So he's not saying that he wants their knowledge, their love to be uh, bound up in knowledge in general, but for their love to be characterized by knowledge of God. Uh, the nuance that this takes on with this other word uh, that it's used with, uh, discernment, uh, is it, it takes a, a special nuance that makes it mean insightful. So he is literally saying that he wants their love to abound more and more in all insightful knowledge regarding God. That is the love that we get to have as believers. Uh, that's the sphere in which he wants his readers' love to abound still more and more. It's not just a blanket statement about love. 
it is very specifically defined as love in the context of knowing God's truth insightfully. Uh, you might wonder how does how does love go on to affect choices? How is love related to discernment? Uh, I think there's a very helpful quote from Mark Dever here. He says, "Wise love makes wise lives, and foolish love makes foolish lives." And that is that is very true. Let me read that again. Wise love makes wise lives. And foolish love makes foolish lives. Uh, we are not just to love all things indiscriminately. We are to love biblically, which means that we are to love what is good. A love which is governed by a godly knowledge and discernment, it does love what is good. If our love is governed by and controlled by what God says in his word, we cannot love what is bad. We cannot put a stamp of approval on what the world does or seeing another fellow believer fall into sin. Uh, having this biblical love, it reorients your heart in the right direction so that even you yourself are able to grow in godliness. Okay, so the first way to bring joy to your pastor, love biblically. The second way, as we move along in the text, Think rightly. So see where Paul goes. From loving biblically, what does he say you should do it because? So that you may approve what is excellent. So approving what is excellent, what does that mean? The word for excellent uh, here in Greek, it's a comparative word. So it doesn't just mean excellent. It inherently implies better than something else. And... This word for approve, it carries with it the idea of, of the finished outcome of testing something. And so he's saying after testing, which is what takes place when you love biblically, you discern based off of God's word. And after testing, the point is so that you may be able to discern and understand what is most excellent over and above everything else. So Paul wants us to have a discerning love. Because when we are filled with this kind of biblically defined love, we have the ability to discern between what is good and what is best. And, and that's, what, that's what wisdom is. Uh, you know, choosing between right and wrong, that's, that's child's play. Wisdom is choosing between right and best. Between two things where I want one more, but I know that one is better than the other. You know, again, as Dever summarized so well, a wise love makes a wise life. Uh, there's plenty of times every day that we're faced with choices that are black and white, that are right and wrong. Uh, many choices, um, especially in, in the adult life, uh, they're not that simple. It's not just a clear-cut right and wrong. So how do you choose between two things where neither one is uh, necessarily the, the wrong option. Paul says the outcome of having this kind of discerning love is that we can tell the difference. Because if we are filled with a biblical love for God that prioritizes his glory above all else, and a biblical love for others that desires to see them presented mature in Christ, then when we're faced between uh, two good options, we will choose 
whatever best accomplishes those two things. The deciding factor between two good options for us as we grow in maturity and we're governed by a biblical love and right thinking is that we will always default to what honors God the best, what feeds the church and serves the body the most. So, so let's make this personal. When you decide, have to decide between two jobs, um, do you stop to consider which one will free you up the most to serve the body of Christ? Is that, is that something that you think about? Um, when you have a, a work opportunity or you, know, you guys are in a college town, um, for, for anyone here who's, who's at that age, when you're deciding between multiple colleges that you could go to, um, do you stop to consider if there's healthy churches where you'll be relocated to? Is that a priority to you in your decision making? Um, let's make this, this really personal. Does your daily time management show that you prioritize God's glory and the life of the church over your personal comfort? Um, you know, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, I have to admit there's times that I, I fail here. Uh, and when we fail, why do we fail? We fail because we don't love God and his church enough. And our love is not governed by biblical priorities. You know, let me say that again. When we fail to prioritize and manage our time well, it's because we do not love God and the church enough to have right priorities. So moving, moving on through the text, you know, we've seen, seen the first two parts of the progression. Paul wants us to love biblically. He wants us to think rightly. And all of this is to enable us so that we can live purely. In the third way, you majority your pastor live purely. Paul says that we're to approve what is excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. Guys, I love grammar so much. We know exactly why Paul put this here. So that, in order that, you will be sincere and blameless. Uh, one commentator notes, and if you're using a MacArthur Study Bible, and you look down at a footnote, you might figure out which commentator that is. That pure here could have originally meant uh, tested by sunlight. Because it was a practice then um, among dishonest pottery dealers, if there were cracks in their pottery, they would fill it in with wax. And then they would put the glaze over the, the mixture of wax and pottery so you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But if you held it up to the sun, you could see the sun faintly shining through the cracks that were filled with wax underneath the glaze. Uh, what a wonderful example for how we as believers should not want to look when we're examined by the light of Scripture. When your life is held up, when it is held in front of the, the pure light of God's Word, are you shown to have integrity? Or is your life full of, of cracks? Is your life broken and simply covered up with a, a, a glaze, a veneer of righteousness that's exposed? Having this kind of, of deep 
set love for God and the church that's governed by true knowledge and discernment, when you're thinking theologically about God's truth, it causes true integrity. When you're going through the motions, putting up the facade, when the depth is not there, when your priorities are out of focus and you're simply showing up Sunday morning, it might look good from the outside, but when the life is examined in the pure light of Scripture, cracks are there. Paul wants believers here, he wants their lives to be genuine. He wants them to be true. He wants them to be pure. He wants real blamelessness and purity of living to flow out of them. Uh, Follow Paul's progression uh, with me. He says, grow in love characterized by godly knowledge and real discernment so that you will be able to discern what is most excellent so that when your life is scrutinized, it will be found genuine. You know, I said that this was a three-point sermon. Um, I lied. It's actually a one-point sermon because Paul is actually just praying ultimately for one thing for the church in Philippi. He's praying, beloved, for their sanctification. This is simply a detailed List of what it looks like to be sanctified and made more like Christ. In the end, he's saying, Church in Philippi, I pray for you that all of these things would happen so that you will look more like Christ. And see, see how here in verse, verse 11, how he says this is made possible. It's made possible by our salvation. Because of the righteousness that we have been giving, it produces fruit in us. Uh, look, in, in verse 11, it says, having been, <coughs> excuse me, this is something that has already, this is perfect tense, it has already taken place. Having been filled. Um, if you have ESV, I don't think it says that. The NASB is having been filled with the righteousness of Christ. And this is the context for being pure and blameless, so that we have already been filled with the fruit of righteousness. It has already been granted to us, just like we said in the beginning. This is not something that we do in our own ability. All of this made possible by Christ's righteousness bestowed to us, which is promised, beloved, promised to bring forth fruit. Uh, The Bible often speaks of how genuine believers will bear fruit. Paul is saying that because we have been given the righteousness of Christ as believers, it is producing fruit in us. And the fruit that is producing in us looks like these things. That because we are saved by the Spirit's enabling power, by God's grace in us, our love will abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, that we will be enabled to have right thinking, that we can have proper perspective because of God's word. So look with me here at the end of verse 11. Why have we been filled? What is the purpose 
God has given for filling us with the fruit of good works so that it will result to the glory and praise of God. That is why. It is not so that you can have your your best life now. It is not, beloved, it's not about you. He wants this to happen in their lives so that God might be glorified. Now think with me again of the example we read earlier about cracked pottery being examined against the sun. And let me ask you, if your life was examined right now, would you be proven genuine? Or would the light shine all through the covered up cracks in your life? What areas of your life are you aware of that you are putting up a facade, but you know, you know in your heart that you're just doing the bare minimum. You're not approving what is excellent. That your default choice is not God's glory. It's whatever isn't wrong. Your question should not be, is this wrong? Can I get away with this? Can I not get in trouble and still get what I want? Our default position as believers should be what glorifies God the most. What serves his body? Like Paul, may we be able to pray that we be poured out as a drink offering. We are nothing. We are nothing. Why is this so important to Paul? Why has he been building up to this? Because at the end of the day, he wants to see God genuinely glorified in the lives of believers. Friends, the glory of God is at stake in your choices every day. The glory of God is at stake in your work ethic. The glory of God is at stake when you hit the snooze button. The glory of God is at stake when you are doing that fifth load of laundry and it doesn't end. There are no small or insignificant choices in the Christian life. We have the ability to glorify God or terrifyingly to, to... I lost my train of thought. That's okay. We can dishonor God in even the smallest choices and we can bring him glory in the most mundane things. What is most important? That we are growing in Christ-likeness and a biblical love in right thinking and in pure living. Beloved, bow with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again so much for your word uh, that brings conviction, that gives truth. Uh, we thank you for your, your spirit who shows us how we can apply your word in our life. Lord, we do pray with Paul as a church, as your body on earth, that we would abound still more and more in love, in biblical love. Lord, that that biblical love would cause us to think rightly about the world and about our choices and that the result would be sanctified believers who bring you glory. In Christ's name, amen.